It is our privilege to bring to you the following message, supported by the gifts and love offerings of the people of Rancho Baptist Church in Temecula, California. This message was recorded during our normal Sunday morning service times. Pastor Rick Foster is serving as our interim senior pastor here at Rancho Baptist Church. Today, Pastor Rick begins a study in the book of Ruth. Let's join Rick now in his sermon entitled, My Story in His Story. What a story. Here's Pastor Rick. Why do we love a good story? If you think back, even from our earliest ages, sitting on the floor in the library or in school and the teacher's reading a story, and it's just captivating to us as kids. We're just wide-eyed and all ears to the story that she or he is telling to us. Or even now as adults, we curl up at night with a, with a good book, a biography or a novel. Uh, why is that? Why are we so captivated by good story? Well, in part, it's because our brains have been hardwired by God for narrative. Uh, We find messages framed as stories to be incredibly memorable, easy to understand, and very convincing. So stories have a powerful way of shaping our lives, regardless of the medium. But there's another way, there's another reason why we love good stories. And that's because life comes to us as a story. Think back for a moment to the last time you went to a theater production. You're sitting in the auditorium talking, and there's this general hubbub going on, and suddenly the lights dim down, and what does that do? It focuses your attention on the stage. The curtain pulls back to reveal a scene. And someone or some group of people has taken real care to produce what's called the stage design. And it may be giving you the feel of a living room or a bedroom or an office or maybe someplace outside. That setting is the container for which all the action. All the story is going to unfold within. Then people emerge into this setting. They're the characters of the story. And what they do and what they say reveals a lot about their heart, reveals about their motivations, about their values, about their fears, about their worldview. And as the story unfolds, these characters begin to interact with each other. And then they begin to interact with their setting. And that interaction is what we call a plot line or a plot crisis. In other words, the story it gives us a very sense of discernible movement. It's taking the characters and us who are reading or watching the story, it's going to take us somewhere. And so the tension that's usually created by the interaction between characters and their setting keeps us riveted, if it's a good story. Because we're wondering, how is all this going to get resolved? How is the story going to end? And we're fascinated by the growth and change that occurs within the characters, or sometimes the lack of change and growth in them. And that's why we can't put some books down. Have you ever been reading a book and so engrossed in it, and suddenly you look up and it's after midnight? Good story does that kind of stuff. Oh, yes. We love a good story. Now, it's interesting that a significant part of moving from adolescence to being an adult is recognizing my life is a story. 
I've got a unique setting that I'm living my life within. And there are characters all around us. And frankly, some of those characters are real characters, aren't they? Yeah. And my interaction with these characters and my interaction with the scene or the setting around me reveals things about my heart. It reveals, in an uncanny way, my motivations, my values, my fears, my core convictions. It also reveals whether or not I am changing and growing through all of this interaction. And every single person living on this earth is living out their story. But for the followers of Jesus Christ, there is a radical difference between the way we live out our story and the way everybody else is living out theirs. Why? Because for the followers of Jesus Christ, we recognize we're not the main character in the story. (laughs) We also recognize it's so easy to be confused or misled as to the plot line that's unfolding in us and around us. And so therefore we recognize the temptation to think that it's all about me in my story. So we're wary of resolving the tensions based on what will be most convenient or comfortable or for my own security. The followers of Christ also recognize the temptation for my story to take precedence over your story. We realize that there is a real temptation for us to expect that your story is to make my story fulfilling for me. (laughs) See, there's a radical difference. And as Christ followers, we recognize this radical difference of how we are living out our story because of the Bible and story. Have you ever realized how much of the Bible is given to us in story form? Why? Well, like I said before, it's because life comes to us as story. But it's certainly not just given to us to entertain us. It's not just, but it's to engage us. And to engage us in at least three very powerful ways. So, for example, the scriptures reveal that there is a larger story going on than just mine. Again, it's so easy, it is for me, to think that our story is the story with a capital T, and it's not. There is something that the scriptures reveal that's much larger, much more dramatic that is going on than simply my little drama. And so the Bible describes a story of epic proportions where something was hidden in the secret in the ancient past, where something dangerous is now unfolding around us, where something is waiting for us in the future, and every single one of us has got a crucial role to play in the story. And this story is unfolding across all generations and in every single people group around the whole world at one time. It is the ultimate story of how God is moving in the midst of fallen creation to glorify himself by rescuing a people by grace. That's the larger story. In other words, the larger story is about redemption that came at a massive cost and yet being given away free. Now, the story of the Bible does a second thing to engage us beyond just reminding us that there's a larger story, but in understanding and appreciating that larger story, that's where we encounter and experience God. See, most of the world sees the story as simply history. 
And for most of the world, they're used to getting their sense of history from scholars and from journalists for whom God is not involved and he is not present with us. And if we're not careful, the same thing can happen to us. We can let our schools, we can let our newspapers, we can let telecasts train us to view history simply in terms of politics, economics, human interests, or environmental concerns. And who's left out? God's left out. But the Hebrew people who gave us almost all of these stories have a different mindset. And if we don't appreciate their mindset, it's difficult for us to enter into these stories for how God wants us to enter into them. Their mindset was well described by Eugene Peterson. He wrote at one time, the Hebrew people were intent on observing and participating in what happened in and around them because they believed that God was personally alive and active in the world, in their community, and in them. Which meant that encountering and experiencing God was not left up to just special feast days when they traveled up to Jerusalem and were in the temple. No. God was also to be experienced and encountered in the mundane activities of ordinary days, in those days of joy and those days of struggle. Yeah, there's a larger story going on. And in that larger story, we experience and encounter God. There's a third thing, though, about the Bible and story we need to understand. And that is we're given the biblical stories to be able to appreciate how our small story is supposed to blend into the larger story that God has in mind. See, when we read the biblical story of God at work in the world, Most of us are really impressed by these stories, aren't we? I mean, just think about it. We see men and women exercising great faith. We see God performing incredibly great miracles. We see God raising up men and women who are wonderful leaders to guide others through difficulties so that they can live a life of joy and responsiveness back to God. I mean, that's impressive stuff, isn't it? And there's the danger. It's so very impressive that while we feel awe, we can also feel left out. I mean, we look at our unimpressive, ordinary, inconsistent lives, and it makes us feel like outsiders to such a star-studded cast. And we can conclude, if we're not careful, that we're just not religious enough, we're not spiritual enough in order to participate in this larger story that God is unfolding. But the stories of the Bible, that's why we need to be grounded in them, because they remind us that God finds the lives of normal, ordinary, imperfect people as irreplaceable in the outworking of this larger story. We count. Every single one of us in this room counts, and what we do counts immensely to our Heavenly Father. And nowhere, nowhere almost in the Scriptures, especially in the Old Testament, is this more dramatically seen than in the story in the book of Ruth. Now, you might think, wait a minute, Rick. How does something that happened 3,000 years ago have any impact to those of us who live in the Inland Empire? I mean, come on. I mean, these events occurred halfway around the world from us long, long ago in a culture that's vastly different than America. Well, I want us to anticipate the journey we're going to be taking for the next couple of weeks through this book called Ruth and the story of it. 
by first of all understanding somewhat what I just mentioned a few minutes ago about story. First of all, let's just look at the original setting. Get your Bibles opening wood to the book of Ruth. I'd hate to disappoint you, but we're only going to look at seven words. The first seven words of the book of Ruth. But open there anyway. If you don't know where the book of Ruth is, go to the table of contents at the front end. It'll give you a page number. Boom, you'll be with us in just a second. How does the book of Ruth start? In the days when the judges ruled. That's good enough for this morning. All right. Here is how the stage is set for us. These initial seven words give us the container for the story of this, that gives us the setting and how the characters are going to interact with each other. The story of the book of Ruth is intimately connected to the book that just comes before it, the book of Judges. And I don't know about you, but the book of Judges, frankly, is a difficult book to read because it records the decline of the people of God in their spiritual passion and commitment. And every succeeding generation moves away from their spiritual roots of having been redeemed by God to be his chosen people. It's hard to read. So let's just be reminded of a few things about it. If you're here in Ruth, just turn back east, left of your Bible, to the second chapter of Judges, where we're given some overview about this time. This helps us put the setting, the original setting in place for us. Turn to Judges chapter 2 starting at verse 7. And by the way, while you turn there, at the bottom of the notes in the bulletin every week, I'm going to give you the scripture of where we're going the following week. So if you want to, read ahead. Kind of get familiar with the story a little bit before you come on Sunday. But what is the original setting like? Judges chapter 2, verse 7 tells us, And the people of the Lord, or excuse me, the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua, And all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua, who had seen all the great work that the Lord had done for Israel. Now jump down to verse 10. And all that generation now were gathered to their fathers. And there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. And what happens when a generation arises that does not know the Lord or his works? Well, drop down to verse 16. Here we go. So the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hand of those who plundered them. Yet they did not listen to their judges, for they whored after other gods and bowed down to them and soon turned aside from the way in which their fathers had walked, who had obeyed the commandments of the Lord, and they did not do so. Whenever the Lord raised up judges for them, The Lord was with the judge, and he saved them from the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge. For the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning because of those who afflicted and oppressed them. But whenever the judge died, they turned back and were more corrupt than their fathers, going after other gods, serving them and bowing down to them. And they did not drop any of their practices or their stubborn ways. Notice, the book of Judges, if we were going to study it, is going to record for us how quickly depravity can overtake a people. And that the transfer of spiritual truth and the, and the, and the transfer of, of spiritual transformation inside of people is not automatic between generations. It can drop out quickly. That's part of the background for Ruth. 
Now, something else I want you to notice. Back up to verse 11 here in Judges 2. There's something else to notice about the original setting. Verse 11. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. And they abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. They went after other gods from among the gods of the peoples who were around them and bowed down to them. And they provoked the Lord to anger. They abandoned the Lord and served the Baals and the Ashtaroth. Okay, why is that important? Because the two big idols outside of Israel, at least as a community of people, were these two idols, Baal and Ashtaroth. And they were Canaanite fertility gods, which meant that that, that some people believed that these two gods were the ones that would cause the weather to be good and for crops to come in. Now, again, remember, this is an agrarian society at this time. Pretty much everybody had a field, grew some kind of a crop, and raised cattle and goats and sheep in an agrarian society. So when the people abandoned the God of heaven, they did so because they believed these Canaanite fertility gods would again cause the weather to be good, the crops to come in and flourish well, and if they did, there would be prosperity. Ooh. The pursuit of prosperity became Israel's obsession over loving and serving the Lord. Wow, does that have a connection to our day or not? Something else to notice, though, about the setting of that day. Twice in the book of Judges, we're given an overview of just the heart attitude of people. If you're writing notes, write down Judges 17.6 and Judges 21.25. The same verse is repeated when we are told, in those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Folks, that is exactly what we are living with today in, our, in the postmodern thinking of the vast majority of people in our country. Postmodern thinking says there are no absolutes. There is no truth outside of me that should come in and guide and direct my life. The only thing that is true is what I believe to be true in my heart of what is best and will work for me. Wow. Was Ruth written and lived out 3,000 years ago? Yeah. It could be in the newspaper this day, though. So easily. And its setting is unnervingly parallel to our culture. Now, something else to appreciate about our journey through Ruth. Not only did we need to understand the original setting, let me give you a little bit of a, a few highlights about the original characters. I'm not going to tell you too much. You know a lot about them already. I think you're going to learn a lot more. But let me just give you a little bit about the original characters. The story, in essence, revolves around three individuals who are both going to amaze us and amuse us. The first one is Ruth. I call her the clueless outsider. Because, folks, frankly, she's an immigrant. She's not a Jew. She's a Gentile, but she's married into a Jewish family. She doesn't know much about the God of Israel. But it's fascinating. We're going to watch because what little she does know is drawing her in and being the foundation for some tremendous courage that she has. It's fascinating. 
The other fascinating thing that we're going to see about Ruth is that she has every reason in the world to keep the God of Israel at arm's length. Because he, frankly, has been brutal in the way he's treated her. Taken away her husband. She's a young widow, no kids. Clueless outsider. Second main character in Ruth, as you know, is Naomi. I call her the bitter older widow. She, she is someone who we're going to ache for because she will experience wave after wave of painful circumstances that leaves her high and dry on the beach of life, having lost all of her earthly security. All the males in her family die. And she has no source of provision and no earthly future prospects of anything getting any better. But it's interesting, as we watch Naomi, she does not retreat into her shell. Rather, instead, she is vocal in her complaint about God, yet fascinating, she doesn't turn, though she flirts with it, she doesn't turn into a cynic. Her faith is not, in the start of the story, very strong but it is enough of an anchor for her to hold on to in the storm that she goes through. Naomi, the bitter older widow. And then we come to Boaz. I call him the confirmed bachelor because he's middle-aged, he has never been married, and here is a guy set in his ways and his likes. Um, He's got financial security. I mean, he's got a significant amount of prosperity, but... He is not flashy. He's one of these quiet businessmen that you can easily overlook. And yet what we're going to discover about Boaz is that he's got a deep faith commitment to the God of Israel that reveals itself not so much in words, but in his bold, courageous, and loving actions. Ruth, the clueless outsider, Naomi, the older, bitter widow, Boaz, a confirmed bachelor. Folks, what an eclectic group of opposites we've got coming. And yet it's compelling to see how the Lord brings this cross-section of multiple generations together and blends their lives into a larger story. There's something powerful for all of us to see there. And it's that sovereign blending of their lives together that reveals the third thing I want to mention, and that is the original plot lines. Again, I'm not going to say too much about it. It'll, it'll, it'll unfold naturally over the coming weeks. But we see in their lives the very elements in our story that we experience. And we're going to be given a front row seat here in Ruth chapter 1, 2, 3, and 4 to see heartbreaking tragedy that results in dramatic rescue. We're going to see People take unnerving risks that ends up in surprising adventure for them. There is sad loneliness that we're going to be brought into that evolves into celebrative romance. And there is a finality of death, though, that leads to astonishing rebirth. And what these plot lines, which we will see happening way back then, What it should impress upon us is that our God, just as personally, is active in our stories today. 
And Ruth powerfully reminds us that God meets us in the ordinary and extraordinary occurrences that make up the stuff of our daily lives. Because what we're going to be doing here as we study this is we're not reviewing secular history, but his story where God's working out his will, where he's challenging people with his call, where he's evoking faith and obedience, where he's shaping a worshiping community, and where he is showing his love and compassion. And so what I'd like to do before we jump in next Sunday is to preview that there are three powerful ways in which the story of Ruth can intersect our lives. Not in the details, but in some general overall movements that I want you to keep aware of. Because as we study our way through this book, there are three words that I want you to keep in mind as you watch the interaction of scene, character, and plot. And by the way, those three words are the same that we ought to be watchful for in our stories as we intersect with seeing the characters and we watch God's plot in our lives. The first word is providence. Providence, which is God's dynamic directing of the circumstances of life whereby his will is accomplished. What you're going to see is that God never visibly shows up here in the story of Ruth. We'll never see an angel. We'll never see a dramatic miracle occur. The the sky never splits open and new revelation is handed down. None of that occurs in, in, in the story. Yet quietly and invisibly, God is unmistakably, though, directing the details of all of this. And by the way, we're going to struggle. And we're going to struggle deeply because some of his providential work is hard. It's painful. It's difficult for them to accept. It's difficult for us to accept as we watch it. We're also going to see some of his providential work that is wonderfully satisfying. It is merciful. It is kind. See, whether it's Israel 3,000 years ago or Temecula, California in 2017, God is personally at work in the details of our smaller story as he tries to blend it into his larger story a story that is good, acceptable, and perfect. So keep the word providence in mind. Second word to savor in the book of Ruth is the word faith. Faith is our dynamic response to the circumstances of life where we trust God's heart. So I want you to watch carefully over these coming weeks the behavior of these three main characters, Ruth and Naomi and Boaz, and how they're responding by faith. Even if it's weak, even if it's just a little kernel, they're still responding by faith to the God of heaven. And by the way, notice that they are not given any assurance of the outcome when they respond by faith. But that's the same with us. We're never given assurances. In fact, some of their faith acts, as we will see, almost appear to be a groping in the dark. And yet they believe that God will show up as they do what they believe he's asked them to do. What an example for us. I mean, how often do we respond to the ordinary, normal details and duties of our day and respond with a heart of trying to trust God with them? 
Will we walk through tragedy even though we are beaten and bruised by it all, but we're stubbornly hanging on to a belief that God is good? So keep in mind providence. Keep in mind faith. Let me give you one one more word to embrace, and that is redemption. Redemption is our dynamic rescue from the circumstances of life by the grace of God. And I'll try to point it out to you because it's going to come in a lot of different forms, but over 20 times the concept of redemption is used in the book of Ruth. And remember, to redeem is to pay the price necessary to set someone free who cannot rescue themselves. So at the core, redemption is the realization that the redeemed person can do nothing to free themselves. All he can do or she can do is put full trust in the one offering redemption. That's all he can do. So grace is going to wash over us as we watch carefully this story. And by the way, isn't that interesting? Because in a veiled way, What we're given here in this Old Testament story is a hint of what the Lord is going to do through His Son, Jesus Christ. God, taking the initiative to pay an exorbitant, the the exorbitant price necessary out of His love for us. And if we will grasp that, wow, it will change the way we view our smaller story and the way it will change the way we view His larger story. So ultimately, the book, the story of Ruth, in fact, all the stories of the Bible, what they do is they invite us to see that there is an author with a capital A and that he is good. And that all he wants is for us to believe his intent is to blend our smaller story into his larger story that will be immensely good for us and incredibly glorifying for him. You all ready for the story? What a story it's going to be. Let's pray. Father, I know that some of my brothers and sisters here in this room, even though we've only been around a couple of weeks, have been talking about how their story is difficult. They're experiencing hard providence. And this story is not theoretical. It's really not of another time. It's mirroring what they're living. And I pray that these characters will be of incredible encouragement of walking by faith and seeing your redemption. Father, all of us are living out a story. Help us as your followers to recognize we're not the main character. You are amazingly so you want to us you want to blend what's going on in and around us with what you're doing that is literally his story and so father i pray that in these coming weeks you'll do a powerful work in our lives a powerful work of realizing how uncommon each one of us is in your eyes the role we have to play and the impact that that can make in lives around us. Oh, Father, amaze us, draw us to yourself. 
Help us once again to realize how good you are. Oh, Father, we pray in Jesus' wonderful name. Hey, thanks for being with us today. It's always a pleasure to serve you with this CD ministry. Here at Rancho Baptist Church, our mission is to glorify God by making disciples who love God, love others, and live to reach their world for Christ. And if you have any questions regarding this sermon, or just perhaps knowing God in a deeper way, don't hesitate to give us a call. Our phone number is area code 951-676-2911. Or you can reach us on the web at www. Dot ranchobaptistchurch.org That's www.ranchobaptistchurch.org Have a great day in the Lord and God bless you as you continue to walk with Him.